Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And Sarah, it is, of course, that time of year when you're probably sick of the sight of Turkey, but still managing to find room for the remaining celebrations in the tin. We have... uh, got to get over the hurdle of the new year celebrations of course against my better judgment i agreed to a party after badgering from my teenagers oh you're brave i'm planning a much much more low-key event this year and i you know i just don't need any more teenagers in my house Um, but i will keep my fingers crossed that nobody mentions your bash on social media and you might be overrun yeah and my height hardly makes me much of a intimidating bouncer but perhaps I can scare off any unwanted guests by reciting my predictions for 2023 and talking very loudly about central bank policies growth and inflation (laughs) you know how to make a party go with a swing you know that might work it might get rid of all of the teenagers and you will be well versed given that that's what we've been analyzing day in and day out and yes in this podcast we're going to be peering into our crystal balls and we'll give you the lowdown on what to watch in 2023 in an episode we're calling what now Yes, we will be looking at where we think inflation, interest rates and energy prices could be heading and look at some of the risks on the horizon. And we'll ask what the future holds for our retirements with our senior pensions analyst, Helen Morrissey. Hi, Helen. You've been giving us a glimpse about what's in store. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. We're going to be talking all things state pension. So, so much to talk about there, Helen. And of course, we'll be joined as usual by Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst, who will be looking at the shares to keep an eye on for 2023. Sophie, what's on your watch list? Hi, Susanna. Yes, I'll be taking a deeper look at three of our five shares to watch for next year, which includes a tobacco major, Volvo, which might not be the company you're thinking of, and Bunzel, for those of you that don't know, is pretty much in the business of everything. So looking forward to getting stuck into that a little bit later. So plenty to get our teeth into. And Emma Wall, HR's Head of Investment Analysis and Research, will give us her fund lowdown. Emma, what types of funds have caught your eye? A variety of options to add diversification to investors' portfolios in the coming year, hopefully to help us weather some of the economic storm that looks like it's coming down the line. Certainly does. Emma, thank you very much. So let's start where inflation is headed. Part of that storm. Rampant prices, of course, so many problems in 2022. So where are they headed next? Well, inflation may have reached the peak, but there is still the potential for plenty of pain ahead as stubbornly high prices cause whiplash for economies. Once elastic supply chains have become more constrained and energy costs are set to stay persistently elevated, particularly if a long winter snap materialises and if China relaxes its zero Covid policy further and demand swings back up. The UK is already thought to be in recession and that will depress demand, but a tight labour market is also set to stay in acute inflationary pressure. Yes, and those on low incomes who spend a bigger proportion of their budgets on essentials will still bear the brunt of higher prices. Nonetheless, inflation is set to fall rapidly from the middle of next year as the recession takes hold and the contraction is felt more widely through the economy. Demand could fall even further if rather than spending available pounds, households batten down the hatches and save more to boost their resilience. Yes, and as far as interest rates are concerned, well, there has been a big sigh of relief that interest rates in the UK are not expected to go as high as was predicted after the disastrous mini-budget. During the market mayhem unleashed after Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng took a gamble on sparking a sugar rush of growth through unfunded tax cuts, the expectation was that rates may have to rise to 6% to bring inflation under control and stabilise the economy. 
But although more hikes are on the way, it is expected they'll be less steep and rates will ultimately go up to around 4.75% by the middle of next year. And this is why more of the super high mortgage rates on the market have been coming down, even as the bank has increased rates and as more heights are expected in the months to come. However, this isn't expected to be enough to save the property market from falling in 2023. The Office for Budget Responsibility expects house prices to drop 9% between the end of 2022 and the autumn of 2024, while Zoopla predicts a fall of 5% in 2023 alone. Now, these are less striking than some earlier predictions, which reflect the easing of mortgage rates. With a long recession looming and unemployment already rising to 3.6%, deflationary pressures could be set to emerge. Lower grain prices on international exchanges should also feed through as long as the Russia situation does not deteriorate. The risk is that if the bank squeezes monetary policy too tight, the recession could be deeper. And in the US too, hopes that the hiking cycle would soon be at an end have dissipated. We're not talking sports and fitness here, but even so, central bankers might still be working up a bit of a sweat about some of the latest jobs numbers in the US. It's that time when good news is taken by some to mean bad news. (laughs) Yeah, that topsy-turvy trend is alive and well. So the latest data from the US signals that the labour market is healthy and tight, but the numbers are a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, a healthy economy and more confident consumers helps quash concerns about spending in the economy. And it means consumers are more likely to stay on top of debt repayments and borrowing. But at the same time, a tight labour market feeds into inflationary worries. Yes, and reality is dawning that further rate rises are likely well into 2023, although those supersized rate hikes should now be in the rearview mirror. That's partly because of lower energy bills. Although energy prices have been hugely painful this year, we have had some relief with the drop in oil and gas prices over the autumn and into the winter. They are still elevated compared to 2021, but uncertainty is coming in waves in energy markets as the choppy tides of supply and demand push up the oil price but keep a lid on big gains. Yes, and there are expectations that there will be less crude available to buy given the $60 cap on Russia oil, which means it can't be shipped using EU or G7 tankers, insurance or credit lines unless it's below that price limit. However, Russia has vowed to circumvent that by leasing tankers elsewhere, and it seems likely that significant flows will be rerouted to friendlier countries. Yes, more broadly, worries about demand being hit by the global downturn are holding crude prices back from more significant gains. OPEC Plus, representing oil-producing nations, has adopted a wait-and-see policy before introducing any further changes to its already lower production targets. This reticence isn't surprising, given it's unclear exactly how the COVID situation in China will play out. There's an uneven easing of restrictions across the vast country, causing some confusion with onerous rules and requirements being lifted in some areas and some provinces, but tests remaining in place for some workplaces. Now, the effect on the economy of the zero COVID rules has been underlined by the cakes in PMI data for November, and that showed activity in the services sector has shrunk to six-month lows. Yes, and investors have been clinging on to hopes that there'll be a further softening of strict pandemic policies, but a rapid turnaround for the Chinese economy is unlikely. The expected surge in infections will be another huge challenge to navigate, and structural problems are still weighing heavily on the economy, not least a property house of cards which still hasn't been fully stabilised. It's that time of year as well, isn't it, when we reassess investments and look at giving them a bit of a spring clean. And there is always the urge to cut your losses. It's a tricky time when there's been so much volatility. Yes, investors have been on a roller coaster ride this year. And although it's tempting to try and second guess market movements, 
they should really hold their nerve and look beyond short-term events and focus on their long-term goals. Rather than switching and ditching stocks, riding out the storm is almost always a better strategy when things start to get rocky. However, a periodic review of a portfolio is no bad thing, as it may be a company's story has changed and it may no longer fit with your investment goals. So this is the time when the priority should be ensuring investors have a diversified portfolio with a wide range of holdings across different sectors and geographies. To try and smooth out volatile effects of market movements, consider drip feeding your portfolio or setting up a direct debit to automate the decision. And of course, the importance of making the most of tax wrappers like ISAs and LISAs can't be overestimated, especially with the announcements of cuts in capital gains and dividend allowances in the autumn statement. So all in all, 2023 is going to be a challenging year. But that doesn't mean that every company will struggle. And Sophie Lundgates, our lead equity analyst, has been looking at a few that may bring some positive changes in the coming year. So Sophie, you and the team have been putting together your five shares to watch for 2023. How are these shaping up? Hi, Susanna. We certainly have. So every year we put together a list of five shares that we think could be worth attention over the next year. So in the interest of time today, I'm not going to be able to chat through all five, um, but I've selected at random three to talk about. So please keep in mind, though, as ever, none of the following is a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. And for a look at the whole list as well, you can find it on the HL website. First up, British American Tobacco. What can you tell us about this company? So British American Tobacco is one of the world's big tobacco producers. Um, There are benefits that come from selling an addictive product. The main ones are recurring revenues and the ability to increase prices. So the latter is crucial because tobacco volumes have been in decline for a while. So higher prices are needed to offset that. So the loyal or as we call it sticky nature of the customer base and low costs underpins the group's dividend paying ability. So BAT, which is um, what we call British American Tobacco, slightly shorter, um, has a prospective yield of 7.3%, which is well covered by free cash flow. The reason we were keen to look at a strong dividend payer for next year is because dividends make up a crucial element of total returns during market downturns. So please remember that no dividend is ever guaranteed. Now, in high inflationary environments, it's worth looking at goods and services people are unlikely to cut back on. Um, You know, other areas of the economy are likely to see people kind of pull back their spending. So BATS falls into the first category, which, which we think is attractive. Now, it would be wrong not to mention that we know tobacco stocks aren't for everyone. So closely linked to this is that there are social risks associated with investing in tobacco, not least that the sector is excluded from some institutional investment products. So the risk of regulators cracking down on new products, so that's things like heated tobacco and vaping, is also worth being aware of. So these new products are pegged as an important area of growth over the long term, but their success partly rests on that regulatory backdrop. Okay, Sophie, thank you for that. So from bats to Bunzel, tell us more about Bunzel. It has diversification in its veins in a way, doesn't it? Yes. So Bunzel essentially does all sorts. So think food packaging, cleaning products and safety equipment. But it's fair to say that this is just scratching the surface. Bunzel has its fingers in all sorts of pies. Um, It's best to think of the group as a large cluster of distribution businesses. So this feeds into the idea that in an uncertain environment, we think looking at companies that offer an indispensable service is a good idea. And by that token, what I'm really saying is that boring can be best. 
We also like that Bunzel has a diverse revenue stream. So all I mean from that is that its profits um, come from many different regions all across the world. Now, rather than investing heavily in internal growth, Bunzel is a merger and acquisitions or M&A, which you might see it abbreviated to machine. So most of the revenue growth over the last 10 years has been a result of acquisitions, with the group spending an average of £370 million a year over that time. Now, M&A-led strategies have their drawbacks. You know, if, if the pool of target companies dries up or a business needs to raise external cash to fund acquisitions, then it's not usually sustainable. Now, Bunzel seems to have that covered. Um, acquisitions have been backed up by a strong operating cash flow and the balance sheet is in a strong position too. Too. So really, there's a lot to admire about Bunzel, in my opinion. But keep in mind, there is still wider uncertainty circling in the economy. And a worse than expected economic contraction could dent performance. So that's Bunzel. Now on to Volvo. But this might not be the car manufacturer you are looking for. Precisely. So the Volvo we're talking about is now a truck and industrial equipment giant. Last year, there were around 2.8 million Volvo trucks, buses and machines rumbling around. Really, we admire the group's high barriers to entry. So Volvo's manufacturing and supply chains are enormous, expensive and complex, helping to protect market share. Volvo has enviable visibility over demand. The order intake for trucks was around 258,000 last year as customers replaced old trucks and expanded their fleets. Now, demand visibility is really important in uncertain times. A bit like I was saying with Bunzel, Lots of areas of the economy are going to be seeing pullbacks in spending, but something like Volvo offers a highly specialised and essential global service, meaning things should keep ticking over, all else being equal. Now, Volvo not only produces vehicles, but services them. So a 24-7 global servicing support network is a serious asset. You know, if, if your truck full of goods is stuck somewhere, you need to have faith it can get moving ASAP. So services currently make up just over a fifth of overall revenues, and that's expected to increase to over 50% by 2030. Now, the part that I find really interesting is that Volvo is also a leader in the electrification of heavy-duty vehicles. Volvo wants over 35% of its vehicle sales to be electric by 2030, and we view being a front-runner of sustainable haulage a real plus point. In the medium term, cost inflation and wider supply chain issues are problematic. You know, not a complete derailment of the investment case, but something that could cause some bumps in the road. Essentially, we view Volvo as a steady eddy, which is nice to have in today's climate. There are long-term growth opportunities too, but as always with investing, nothing is guaranteed. Okay, thank you very much, Sophie. It'd be really interesting to see what happens with these companies in the years to come. Will these eddies continue to be as steady? And please remember, investing in individual shares isn't right for everyone. That's because it's higher risk. Your investment depends on the fate of that company. If that company fails, you risk losing your whole investment. If you can't afford to lose your investment, investing in shares might not be right for you. You should make sure you understand the companies you're investing in and their specific risks. And any investment should be part of a diversified portfolio, more more on that later, yields are variable and not a reliable indicator of future income. So another area with plenty of change on the cards is state pensions. So let's bring Helen Morrissey back. Helen, what do you think 2022 will be remembered for in the world of pensions? Thanks, Sarah. That's a really good question because a lot has happened. Now, 2022 will be known as the year that people heard about liability-driven investments, as well as the ongoing saga of whether the triple lock was staying or going. 
Ah, yes, liability-driven investments. We heard a lot about that back in September and October time, and it all seemed to get a bit scary. Can you explain a bit about what happened? Sure. So liability-driven investments are a strategy used by many big final salary schemes to make sure their investments rise and fall in line with what they call their liabilities. Now, these liabilities are the retirement incomes they pay out to people. Now, these schemes can be paying these incomes out for decades and they need to make sure that there are enough assets to enable them to do this. Now, two major factors that managers need to consider are movements in inflation and interest rates over time. And so they'll effectively buy a kind of insurance known as hedges to help them manage these movements. Interest rates have been on the rise throughout the year and the cost of these hedges has also risen. And so the pension fund needs to find the money to pay these increased costs. However, in the aftermath of the mini budget, The bond markets went absolutely haywire, pushing up these costs rapidly and pension schemes were being asked to plug these gaps at very, very short notice. Now, if they didn't have the cash available, then they had to sell assets, most notably gilts, which pushed up interest rates even more, creating a real downward spiral. So it looks like it could have veered out of control, but the Bank of England stepped in to steady things, didn't it? Yeah, so the situation did escalate very quickly, prompting the Bank of England to launch an asset purchase scheme whereby it pledged to buy gilts. Now, this helped to steady the market and it did give pension schemes time to get the strategies back in order again. So what do you think the impact of all that has been? So it's certainly unnerved people and more are asking whether their pension is safe or not. So to be clear, this issue affected final salary schemes. So if you're in a defined contribution scheme, this didn't affect you. It's also worth saying that not all final salary schemes were affected um, badly. Many navigated the situation fine and some actually emerged from it in a better position than when it began. (laughs) That's good to know. So you also mentioned the triple lock. So that's been a really big issue, hasn't it? Yes, it really, really has. So in November, we finally got confirmation that the triple lock will be returning next year, with pensioners getting a 10.1% increase in their state pension. As the cost of living continues to bite, this will have been welcomed by pensioners concerned that the triple lock might be suspended for another year. So just as a reminder, the triple lock is the formula used to operate state pension every year. It rises with whichever is highest, average wages, inflation or 2.5%. So there does seem to have been an awful lot of back and forth on this, hasn't there? Absolutely. So earlier in the year, the then Chancellor Rishi Sunak said it would be returning. And this was reiterated by Liz Truss when she became Prime Minister. However, a series of ministers then refused to confirm whether the government was going to bring it back. And this led to concerns that it was just too expensive. It was finally confirmed in the autumn statement, which will be a relief to those who've been struggling with the rising costs of living this year. It must have been a really stressful wait for final confirmation. But so looking ahead, do you think these issues are going to continue to loom large? Absolutely. The status of the triple lock certainly will, as the uncertainty surrounding it has prompted speculation that its days may be numbered. There's a lot of discussion around how fair it is to effectively guarantee pensioners increases of at least 2.5% per year on their state pension when younger generations are seeing their wages fall in real terms. We're also expecting a report to be issued on state pension age early in the new year. 
So as it currently stands, state pension age is due to rise to age 68 by 2044. But this report looks at whether this should be brought forward and it's believed the government wants to bring this shift forward to 2039. However, rumours are starting to swirl that this could now happen even earlier. And the concern is is that many people are simply unable to work until age 68 and this could cause them severe financial hardship. People need certainty in terms of how much they're going to receive in state pension and when they will receive it. And if the cost of maintaining the triple lock causes such uncertainty, then we need a review to highlight the best way forward. Well, thanks for going through all that, Helen. It's, it's going to be another interesting year for pensions by the sounds of things. Absolutely. Always, always a busy year for pensions. And I'm sure you will keep us updated. Thank you very much, Helen. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Well, let's bring in Emma Wall now, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL, who's been looking at some of the funds to watch in 2023. We've got a very uncertain outlook ahead, haven't we, Emma? Yeah, we have, Susanna. As our listeners have already been hearing, the economic outlook for 2023 is is far from positive. So recession is looming and stock market volatility is highly likely. And because of that, we're feeling cautious about the coming year. And our five funds to watch reflect this with a greater number of multi-asset and fixed income funds than we have selected in previous years. It's important to note that any investment should be made with an outlook of at least five years. And before you invest, you should consider whether a fund's objectives are aligned with your own financial goals and that you understand the risks. You can find out more about these five funds, including their charges, their risks and the key investor information on our website. And remember, any investment should be made as part of a well-diversified portfolio. This isn't personal advice. And if you're unsure about any of these investments, do seek professional advice. So first up is Perford Global Total Return. This fund invests in a mix of stocks, bonds, commodities and currencies, and it has three aims. Not to lose money over a 12-month period, deliver an inflation-beating return over the long term, and to do all of this with low volatility. So this focus on capital preservation is a conservative stance that we really like in the current market environment, although, of course, there are no guarantees. So next up is the Schroeder's Managed Balance Fund. What's caught your eye here? So this is similarly a multi-asset fund, so invests in a, in a mix of stocks and bonds. But here the managers primarily invest in funds run by other talented Schroeder's fund managers, although they can invest outside of the Schroeder's range where necessary as well. Collectively, those managers invest in hundreds of different companies and bonds, and the managers also invest in alternative areas of the market and thematic funds. So the alternatives part of the fund includes commodities, including energy and gold, as well as themes such as food and water and digital infrastructure. This means the portfolio offers plenty of diversification, always a key attribute of a good portfolio, but particularly important in times of market stress, which we are expecting for 2023. And I suppose, you know, fund managers at this time really have to keep such a close eye on the global macroeconomic outlook. Absolutely, which leads us to the third pick, which is M&G Global Macro Bond. So Jim Levis, this fund's manager, starts with his sort of bigger picture macroeconomic outlook, forming a view on economic growth, interest rates and inflation globally, topics which are, of course, dominating the headlines at the moment. 
Levis then has the freedom to invest in different types of bonds issued in different currencies to generate a combination of income and growth over the long term. The fund invests across global government bonds, investment grade corporate bonds and higher risk, high yield and emerging market bonds. He can also use derivatives to enhance returns, but this is a higher risk approach if used. Investing in different bonds issued overseas also adds currency risk. In terms of dividend income as well, what funds have you been watching? Absolutely. So we've heard Sophie speak earlier about the importance of dividends when you're going into a volatile market. And our fourth fund is Jupiter Income. So the UK has faced further headwinds in 2022, not least rising inflation and an ongoing political upheaval. That said, UK Large Company Index, which features the biggest dividend payers in the UK market, has held up better than most global markets, partly helped by stronger returns from sectors including oil and gas and healthcare. Jupiter Income invests in UK companies that the managers believe are undervalued by the wider market. So this focus on out-of-favour companies is called value investing. And this style has struggled in recent years and means the fund can fall out of favour through certain periods of the market cycle. The value investment style has the potential to do better when interest rates and inflation are rising, things that we're expecting for 2023, and the style therefore came back into favour in 2022. Past performance, obviously, is not a guide to the future, though. The manager invests in a fairly small number of companies, so each investment can influence performance for good or bad, which increases risks. Investors should also be aware that the fund's charges are taken from capital, which could help boost the income, but also reduced from some of the potential for growth. Okay, so finally, uh, your last one, your last uh, fund to watch and a bit of a no frills approach. Absolutely. We recognise that with so much uncertainty currently in markets, a tracker fund with a no frills approach could be a reasonable long term option and could form a good core building block of most portfolios. So we've gone for a globally diversified fund here of companies, which we think could be a good choice for long term growth potential. And in this market, in this area rather, we like legal and general international index. The fund diversifies across global markets, but it is heavily weighted in US companies, which makes up around two thirds of the fund. This is determined by the underlying index that the fund is tracking. Other countries and regions represented in the fund include Japan, Canada, Europe, Australia and Taiwan. The fund also has some exposure to emerging markets, which adds diversification, but also increases risk. The fund doesn't invest in the UK, though, so it could be useful for exposure to global markets without the UK. Other funds focused on the UK could be held alongside this one in order to gain exposure to our home market and have that total global diversification within your portfolio. Great. Thank you so much, Emma. Really interesting insight into the funds there to watch for 2023. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hoggies Lansdowne. And now it's time for the quiz. And for this one, we're looking back at 2022 and some of the more unusual investment stories for the year. So let's start with a man who created plenty of them, Elon Musk. He swept into Twitter and made some sweeping changes, including sacking 80% of the staff. But when he did so, Sarah, what was he carrying? A giant broom? A kitchen sink or a scythe? <laughs> it would have been great to see him try and get that scythe past security. But I know this one. It was a sink. 
Yeah, he did. He tweeted a video of himself with the words, let that sink in. It's quite a a poor pun, really, isn't it? Okay, right. This year has been a fairly torrid one for crypto, especially for FTX, which saw a run on the exchange. But one of the things crypto has always been good at is coming up with weird names for the coins. So which of these are real and which have I made up? So is there such a thing as the useless Ethereum token, putting coin or unobtainium? Oh, now this sounds like one of your trick questions. So they're either all made up or they're all real. So I'm going to go for all real. You are right, although I'm not sure I would touch any of them with a barge pole. Okay, so now on to some more alternative investments, but this time something more familiar, comics. So, in September this year, the comic which introduced the world to Superman was sold for a whopping $3.4 million. Its official name was Action Comics Number 1. But what was it known through the deal process? Was it the Super Copy, the Krypton Copy or the Rocket Copy? Oh, I've no idea. I'm tempted to say Krypton, but comic book fans are such sticklers for accuracy and Kryptonite is not good for Superman. So I'm going to go for the super copy. Not a bad guess, but it's wrong. It was actually the rocket copy, named after the rocket stamp that the original owner used to mark the cover when he was just 13, way back in 1938. That is a long time to keep a copy of a comic, isn't it? Uh, the sale comes just months after the same comic was sold for $3.2 million at Dallas's Heritage Auctions to a buyer who clearly wasted no time in reselling it. I think my husband's actually hoping that one day all those rolling stones magazines in the loft might be worth something i just think it's wishful thinking though yes i think you probably should just put them in the bin yes uh, i've got to persuade him okay let's stick with collectibles this time something slightly harder to store in the loft tractors a blue 40 year old so-called short nose ford tractor sold at auction in the uk in the spring it was bought for twenty thousand pounds back in 1982 so how much did it sell for just how popular do you think tractors are? Was it 75,000? Was it 125,000? Or was it 215,000? Oh, I can't believe an old tractor could be worth a fortune, but you never know what people are going to choose to collect. So I'll go down the middle, 125,000. No, it was more expensive, £215,000 and purchased by Tom O'Connor, a businessman who owns a utility business near Manchester. He grew up on a farm and turned into a collector with 12 tractors now in his shed. Apparently, according to the auctioneers, the tractor market is alive and well and collectors are becoming younger and demand is focused on tractors and machinery from the 70s, 80s and 90s because they want to buy up a slice of nostalgia. (laughs) Do you know, I'm not sure I'd have a lot of patience if someone in my house started collecting massive tractors. I think I'd, I'd actually rather my teenagers stuck with collecting dirty crockery under their beds. Imagine the tractors all lined up along a cul-de-sac near you. Let's hope it's not a trend for 2023. That's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 12th of December 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. This is not advised for a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment and no view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. 
Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Helen, Sophie, Emma and our producer, Elizabeth Hotson. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.